to the Circle of Competence podcast. Today, my guest is Neil O'Donnell, friend, investor, lawyer, and Munger Mini, Neil O'Donnell. Welcome back to the Circle of Competence podcast. So are you raising us back these days? I, I, everybody is. Uh, we'll, we'll see We'll see what my, you know, I just want to blank check uh, company and then we'll, we'll go from there. Uh, but yeah, it, it really is a fascinating space. Um, Matt Levine written some good articles about it too. Yeah, I from a from a legal perspective, you have a lot more experience in the in the legal finance space. So I, I want to know from a high level, what are the terms around the typical SPAC deal for for an investor? For just a tip, like I'm going to go buy a SPAC uh, IPO. What are the typical terms for me, just retail, Mister Retail Investor? Right. So SPAC sort of has, has two stages and, and I'm, you know, uh, know about them. We've actually considered them for some of the companies that, that come through a uh, capital and we've, we've looked through some other um, opportunities as well. You know, like for the most part, a SPAC is in two stages. The first stage is just the blank check stage, you know, investors, especially certain SPAC focused hedge funds pick up a $10 share. Um, and a SPAC might have a vertical focus, or, you know, you might just be betting on, on the CEO and, and the, and the C-suite um, in order to acquire the company to, to come through the SPAC. Then um, upon finding the acquisition, uh, sometime, and, and this company at, at the initial stages might have, you know, a few million dollars in the bank account up to hundred million, depending on the size of the SPAC. Typically upon finding the acquisition, um, the, the holders of the SPAC share can, can see the, the potential target and then can decide to upside. Um, and then at that point, they invest typically like two X of, of the, the initial SPAC amount. So if it was $100 million, it might go to $300 million to acquire what was previously a private company. Um, you know, there's been a huge uh, uptick in, in SPAC issuance so far for this year. That was initially fomented by COVID, uh, like so much was, when the, the IPO markets were totally, um, you know, totally shut down, basically, for most companies. And so you saw uh, DraftKings and, and a few other names get they listed through SPACs. Um, DraftKings was interesting too, since it was a, a combination in, a, in addition to an acquisition. Um, but the, the component uh, is now that just you know, SPACs in their own right have become a faster way for companies to, to go public. And so the one caveat for companies to consider is typically more expensive um, than, than traditional offerings. And so, you know, without, without getting too much into the weeds, there, there was a strong pushback last year and, and in 2018 for direct issuances, which are the least expensive ways for companies to, to go public. Um, that's seen as, as a way for companies to go public with maybe like a, a 2% or, or, you know, even lower fee um, in order to go public. So the company is, is raising, you know, $10 million, they would receive 9.8 million, um, you know, in, in, in the, in, in the raise, uh, conversely, you know, a, an IPO might be, you know, somewhere between six to, to, you know, six to 3% in terms of fee and, and, and even lower for something like Facebook, which Morgan Stanley basically listed for free. Um, and then a SPAC is typically 8% or more, um, and, and, but it, it's the fastest way for companies to go public. It's a way to go public with slightly less due diligence because the, the S1 was filed upon the, the initial registration and then there's an amendment to the S1. Um, and so it's, it's typically a way for one, when capital, when capital markets are shut down to go public and then two to go public with more of a, you know, in, in a more expedient manner and, and the time to market really doesn't matter. So... I get that it's it's a faster way to go public, but slightly more expensive. Now, right. let's talk about alignment of incentives. This is something that you and I have really. This is something that you and I are very uh, attuned to, and something that you know, as uh, value investors and people, you know, we've studied the the Mungers and the Buffets, the folks that really care a lot about alignment of incentives. Right. What kind of alignment or lack thereof? Do you have between SPAC investment investors, so the retail investors that buy into the IPO, um, be it hedge fund or uh, or just someone off the street, and then the actual uh, folks issuing the the paper, right? So the folks that are issuing the stock that will then eventually go and buy these private uh, or public companies. Right. I mean, alignment, alignment of incentives is, is very important, um, and uh, you know, there's sort of like two mechanisms there. So, so one is just how much equity do the does the C-suite, especially the the CEO and, and COO, hold of, of the company to, to be acquired? Um, you know, and, and typically they're they're fairly well equitized to sort of like starting a new division of a company or anything else, and they'll typically end up owning. You know, the CEO might might own 
you know, low single digit percentages of the, of the final business. And, you know, typically the more, the better, especially if they're a substantial part of the, the capital uh, contributing it. As Warren Buffett says, it's very easy to achieve alignment of interest when somebody's willing to, to write a check. Um, it's, it's, it's rare. It's rare in financial markets if, if that's actually the case. The second is that if you're looking to be a SPAC investor before the acquisition is chosen, making sure that you have solid rights to approve or, or not approve the acquisition and that, you know, and, and to see the hedge funds that are riding with you um, is, is relatively important. You don't want people that will just rubber stamp the transaction because initially nobody has really any visibility besides maybe some information on, on the vertical of, of the acquisition. Um, and then third, you know, it's the, the last component is what, what will be the role of the uh, company C-suite that, that's so acquired going forward. You'd want to see them, you know, retain some equity and hopefully, you know, stay in the company for up to two years after, um, at least as, as there is a uh, pivot from, you know, the business that was formerly private to now a public company. And some companies are going to, you know, do what last, the very last component, just because of, you know, the nature of Sarbanes-Oxley and other regulatory rules, you probably want to be in larger SPACs than smaller SPACs, even though you might have less of a control of what they acquire. The, the general rule is just that, you know, company, it's expensive to be a public company. And, and so to make sure that they're keeping up with the regulatory disclosures and everything else is, is, is very important. Um, companies like Parker Drilling, on the other hand, which were formerly public, are now engaging in these like going dark transactions, which is almost like a SPAC in reverse. Um, so it's a great time for public markets. Uh, you know, if, if you're following these things, and if you're an attorney like me, you're really more in the the moving business than in the storage business. And so things are really moving around as, as COVID changed the world. No doubt about that. And one thing I found myself discovering uh, I, I've discovered something about myself and that I, I feel like I'm a little bit more contrarian than I thought I actually was. And right. the reason why I say that is because I look at all this capital flowing into SPACs and I just cannot imagine that all of these are going to be good investments. In fact, I'm just going to throw it out there that the vast majority of these will not be good investments as in they won't outperform the S&P 500. I'll throw it out there. Happy to be wrong in 10 years, but would be yeah, happy yeah. to take have somebody take the other side of that bet. That's if it. I'd be I, curious I if right now ready to he's listening. Ready to he, he's listening. Yeah, exactly. I don't have a million dollars to uh, to, to to bet on this though, right. and uh, I'm not going to bet either way. But so for whatever that that counts, my two cents. But I'd be curious if you think differently, or maybe is it a little bit more that you you're betting on the jockey, right? Are you, are you betting on the um, the uh, the open door specs right versus like the versus like the Billy Beans of the world. Right. So I'd be curious how you're thinking about this. No, it, it, unsurprisingly, because we because we do align on a lot of things. I do think about it in a relatively similar way. You know, importantly, you know, like I said, this is almost in in some ways like a faster and, and more expensive IPO. Um, and so if, if you really think about this, you know, one Warren Buffett has has always evinced a and and especially Charlie Munger has has talked about. An aversion to IPO shares. IPOs do tend to underperform. They come in more expensive than in the market overall, and they tend to under underperform the market overall as, as you pay a higher multiple for those cash flows than anything else. Here, especially given that the companies are looking to sell at a price, and that price will be more discounted than than an IPO, you might think that they have even more skepticism. Like I said, maybe you know the average amount here of a discount might be eight percent or ten percent that goes to the uh, the law firms and everybody else that, that's forming these facts. It's just a more expensive transaction. So if you're discounting, you know, if, if you're considering that the people that own most of the stock are not even willing to sell at what you're buying at, but actually, you know, 0.92 times what you're buying at. So if it's a hundred million dollar company, then they're willing to sell at 92 million and you're buying at that price. There's probably some at least cognitive dissonance associated with that. And, and, and I take the same side as, as of your bet too. We, we had to find the, uh, the person that's, that's very inclined about SPACs at present that, that would, um, that would purchase it. And the very last thing is that, you know, as applied to SPACs right now, I mean, I think that the DraftKings transaction was interesting in that that combination in the context of a SPAC was was potentially helped their competitive position in the sort of Porter Five Forces analysis. Now is more load into SPACs. You know, what Genius is doing in the beginning, fools probably do at the end. And so you're probably getting uh, in this time series progression throughout 2020 lower quality SPACs now than than emerged in April when it was just companies that would have otherwise IPO'd. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. What are some of the SPACs that you've actually looked into and studied um, 
either particular investors or companies. I'd be curious because I've I've looked at a few like Chamas on the Open Door, and I think I read something that he had reserved the I, the stock tickers of IPOA to IPOZ. Like he wants to yeah. raise as many of these as he can. Right. Which to me is just the potential for a massive equity transfer from retail investors to his pockets, which good for him. If you can get the money, it'd be hard to say no. And and consummate 26 transactions and and investors, you know, receive proper disclosure and everything else. You know, so I I really have to take a look at this DraftKings transaction. Um, For for capital technologies, we we looked at, we, we actually looked at forming a SPAC with, with respect to one of the portfolio companies because we, we thought it might be interesting with, with the combination of another company in, in the delivery space. Um, and so we, we talked with a law firm in order to to understand, you know, if, if it made sense to, to consummate that transaction. Ultimately, we decided not to. Um, you know, frankly, the company is so cranking that they, they didn't want to sell their equity, um, even at, at a, you know, the, the current SPAC valuations. Um, so we, we really got under the hood, though, with, with respect to how that transaction would, would work. Um, and even talk to some some bankers and things like that. Um, but you know, on, on that, I think that what you're going to see a lot of is you know the combination of of SPACs as a vehicle working within the market, and then the, the medium being you know technology companies or anything else, which at least until the last two weeks were, were previously cranking. Um, and, and so I think that you'll probably see companies try to list through those, and and it probably makes sense for those technology companies to do so too, just because, like I said, the, the disclosure requirements in S1 tends to be a little bit simpler, and so. Where those were previously very onerous on companies because of the nature of Sarbanes-Oxley and, and, and filing an S1, um, you'll probably see some relatively early stage companies that were on the fence because of the complexity and the time required for the IPO transaction. One thing I really have taken a look at is uh, Snowflake and, and Buffett's participation in the IPO on Snowflake. I was blown away by that. I mean, that's actually probably, probably the biggest one of the biggest uh, things I'm surprised about since, since the time that we last talked um, is just you know a technology company that's IPOing. And Warren Buffett's participation in, in a late stage raise in anticipation of an IPO. I was blown away by that. I think that that shows a real change in, um, you know, his uh, his activities as, as an investor. Agreed, agreed. And to be fair, what did he put into it? Two hundred fifty million, I think. Yeah, two hundred fifty. Yeah, so so only only a quarter of a billion, which which you know compared to a you know, one hundred and thirty billion in growing cash position is is you know de minimis, right? But um, but but overall, I mean, I think it, I think it does show an interest. I, to your point about about the position sizing, I think what he's increasingly doing is, you know, before Uber, he did look at making a you know late stage investment before the Uber IPO. And I think you know previously he used, if you, if you look at his capital allocation, and we, we've talked a tremendous amount about Warren Buffett generally, but if you look at his cal- capital allocation previously, first he was absolutely you know the the you know Ben Graham style investor, then became the Phil Fisher investor, and all that's really studied. After the Phil Fisher stage, though, I think what people are less inclined to talk about is, you know, Burlington, Burlington Northern Santa Fe, Mid American Energy, as sort of like his wedges into the market to to a, do tuck in acquisitions to to deploy capital in these in these niches that he thought stopped up a lot of the capital that he, pre, that he had, and it was a you know obviously growing balance sheet, um, and and into these more capital intensive industries in general, and then to you know to put in the five hundred million dollar checks into acquiring these companies that he thought earned above average returns on, on his capital. And now I think, you know, to your point, he's deploying these smaller check sizes because as these wedges st- stopped, you know, don't um, engage in as much or, or don't take up as, as much of his capital moving forward, he's looking to, you know, just acquire positions that could grow substantially if the companies work. And so he's willing to write these smaller checks in order to, to you know, continue to diligence the market and, and find the positions that he can, you know, find the next Apple that would, you know, stop up his capital on a go forward basis. Yeah, agreed. This is <clears throat> almost like a, a call option for him where he can, exactly. as he finds out more about the market, can effectively size up his position. Um, and I think, too, one thing that I've been thinking about with in terms of Snowflake is, you know, it's a, it's a data warehousing as a service. Um, it, it is a real infrastructure play on technology. And yeah. Buffett, if you kind of look at his investments over the years, have been the enablers and the toll booths and the infrastructure of many different industries. Another one that um, that I've always liked that he's held a, a good stake in was Verison, which right. is like this, it's like, um, so whenever you go to a .com website, uh, I think they might own 
a couple other dot, uh, maybe dot org as well. I can't remember, but I know it's yeah, dot com. They, dot com, dot org. And they actually, um, when they when they went to like the dot XYZ and other format listings, they actually are also participating in those too. So that was a major boon for the the company. Right, exactly. So they own these, they own the, uh, the, the directory system, effectively the filing system of the internet. And so every time that, you know, that this, the directory listing service, I mean, every time, I don't know what the exact name of it is, but every time you go to a, you know, someone has a dot com, you're paying part of that fee to, uh, to Verisign. And so that, exactly. you know, which was, it's just very interesting because Warren Buffett, you know, is not a tech guy, right? But I think that's a little bit of a simplistic way to look at it, you know, um, and I, I think you would agree with this, but it's interesting that Snow, he invested in Snowflake because it is sort of that back of house infrastructure of the rest of these tech companies, right? 100%. No, I, I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, it, it is, a, it's in and of itself a capital like compounder, but a lot of times what Buff is looking for is that sure 15%, right? And, and especially within the context of VeriSign, he really did, you know, enormously well by virtue of the fact that the, the infrastructure that they provided um, for the for the domains of .xyz and everything else, that directory system became so valuable uh, when, when they started to do um, you know the uh, .es for for ventures .es, which which print be sure uses or anything else um, like that's it really became a lot more uh, valuable. So I mean I think you're exactly right. Oftentimes you're looking to sell picks and shovels to to the market, and then you know GoDaddy and others can take the infrastructure layer and and apply an, an application layer to it to to go out and and you know sell the software, but each time, you know, VeriSign's collecting a, a you know, portion of that uh, and, and really benefiting from almost, you can think of it as like a, a royalty that, that, that they have um, with, with GoDaddy and the other domain providers. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously Neil's done his work on VeriSign. I, 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 uh, full disclosure, I do own a, a substantial portion of, of VeriSign. I, I, since 2015, I've owned it. So, you know, feel free not to, not to buy it or to take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. Yeah. It's been a great pick. It's been a great pick. Uh, so let's go back to, to the SPACs that we were discussing previously. Have you looked into this open door transaction? Yeah, so I, I've, I've looked into it a little bit, but, you know, as Charlie Munger would say, I really don't know enough to be in, intelligent about it. You know, so I, I, I have done my homework on it. Um, like, I, I think, I, let, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me reverse the, uh, the roles here. I, I, you, you've obviously looked at it, what, what, uh, and, and to, to, be, to be totally uh, transparent, um, Benton is a, uh, you know, he spends a lot of time interviewing these investors, but he, he's a commercial real estate investor and an investor in his own right. What, what, what do you think about it so far? Because I, I think you've done more homework than me. <clears throat> well, it is part of the quote unquote, I buyer company revolution. So it's it's doing a great job at attempting to help people sell their homes much quicker. So to provide liquidity uh, and be a not just a market maker like like the Zillows of the world, which actually I believe Zillow got into this business they, to compete with Open Door. Right. Yes. Exactly and, right. and they were they were originally just a marketplace, so a capital light company. And for the life of me, I don't know why they wanted to get into a capital intensive business, which is the iBuyer market. Um, right. My biggest question, this is actually interesting. You can go check it out on Twitter. Uh, there's a guy named Mark Gilbert that I follow. He's a real estate professional maybe up in St. Louis, Missouri, I can't remember. But he posted a really great, he sort of reposted um, Chamath's CNBC interview where he was laying out his thesis. And I love it when, when he does this. Like he, he, he goes yeah. through his whole thesis. It's like a four-minute thesis on why he believes that the iBuyers will dominate the, the real estate market. But <clears throat> the biggest risk that I see for these companies, and by the way, they laid off 35% of their workforce during COVID. Right. That is while home transactions, residential transactions, now commercial transactions kind of fell off a cliff. And we can talk about that later. But while residential transactions just kept cranking, which is beyond me. Um, but like, for example, I live in the Raleigh-Durham area and it was like, they, they were up 25% year over year. Like right. COVID, what is COVID, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so my question is, you know, just like in 2008, when these, um, when these folks were levered to the hilt, using all sorts of derivatives, you know, because home prices don't go down. My question yeah. is, is when the markets slow down and the holding costs of having actual homes in inventory, like what are the holding costs for those? I I'm not super familiar with their capital structure, uh, how much debt they have or don't have, but I just, um, Mark Gilbert posted 
on his Twitter. He said, okay, what they don't tell you is a large percentage of their uh, of their business comes from markups. So basically, right. effectively, like flipping the house. Now, they also take a little bit of a fee because they serve as sort of like the, the real estate um, agent doing the transaction between buyer and seller. But they also, they hold... Um, they hold the property and inventory. So it's a pretty capital intensive business. Um, so I just wonder, I just wonder what's going to happen. Um, if we do get a slower residential market, I I just, I I wonder, that's just a question. So anyways, I asked the question and, uh, and because he had actually, he had actually, uh, tweeted at, uh, Keith Raboy, who I believe is, you know, um, was either part of the company or invested in the company or both. Um, so anyways, we had an interesting exchange, but he was very confident that it would work in all markets. So, you know, they are, I guess, I guess like, like you, I, I I have a sort of a contrarian uh, streak. Um, and and I do think that one, it's just, it's becoming an an increasingly competed market. You know, it's not just Zillow and it's not just open door. And I mean, I think that there's really six or seven I buyers of scale right now, but they're, they're in a tremendous space, right? I mean, you know, trillions of dollars of, of US real estate uh, to, to buy. Um, I do think that the margins are relatively thin for a model where you're allocating a lot of capital um, and, and, and doing relatively quick purchases with, with due diligence. A lot can be diligenced for, for real estate by virtue of a zip code, but as Benson can tell you better than me, you know, these, these boxes that you live in, you know, there's, there's a unique aspect to real estate that makes it non-fungible um, and, 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 you know, and something where you really need to understand the space and what, what you're getting into. So you know, from my perspective too, a place where you're very capital intensive with relatively thin margins um, makes it relatively hard to to allocate you know to, to allocate capital prudently um, and and it's a, and it's certainly in a situation where because of the thin margins you're probably encouraged to have a relatively uh, high portion of leverage within your capital structure and then you know all of that uh, I think at a point Charlie Munger compared you know using a lot of leverage for LBOs is driving with a, a dagger on your on your steering wheel um, and, and so you know it, it goes great until you hit any sort of ice, right? And, and then at that point, it could be a major problem, you know? So I, I, I think here that it's, it's, it's a similar dynamic, you know, the, the one, uh, just intermediating the real estate agent um, and making the, that more saleable and, and with, with fewer costs upon resale likely makes sense. But, but I think that volume purchasers were probably doing some of that already and, and getting discounts with respect to fees for, for real estate agents. Um, and then second, the technology driven piece, I think makes a lot of sense, but I, I'm a little bit of a skeptic as applied to a lot of additional work being done besides a zip code and, and understanding the you know median income with respect to a, a property around that. So I think I think it's a relatively efficient market. Um, and certainly, you know, real estate agents do do some work and commercial real estate investors or residential real estate investors like like Benson and others do do a lot of work to understand the assets that, that they're buying. And so I don't think that it, that is so inefficient that um, that there will be the opportunity for a hundred companies to make above average returns. And I do think that that some, especially the ones that don't do their homework and, and don't involve some human piece could easily be picked off. Yeah, that's a, <clears throat> a couple of things that I want to hone in on there is in this Twitter thread, Mark Gilbert posted, one of the things that he sort of took took aim at was that the, fa- or the idea that you could use all this data and correctly forecast what was what was going to happen in the residential uh, housing markets in some of these zip codes or some of these uh, big MSAs. And, you know, Keith Raboy was like, well, it happens very slowly. And, you know, we've got enough data to where we, we think we can predict this. So it effectively comes down to, if you can see the slowdown coming, uh, you can adjust your, you can adjust your pricing and your offers. You probably won't make, which again, by the way, then you won't potentially knock down as many houses uh, and your revenues go right. down. So, so if you're forced into sort of buying as the sh- as, as the market is softening, again, I, I don't I don't know what their capital structure is, um, but I, I've always wondered about this i buyer this i buyer model and the idea that you can correctly predict where the market is going to go. Right. <clears throat> so it'll be interesting, and, and I think I think Chamath has been very very successful in. The technology space, and I think he's extremely sharp. And I wish him the best of luck. I would say that real estate is a very slow and clunky and capital-intensive business, and it will be interesting to see how technology, which is typically a very, very capital-light 
business mixed with a capital intensive business, which side wins? If that makes right. sense. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. Right. Like, and sometimes you see this with, with WeWork too, right? Where they sort of, the, the dynamics of, of, you know, real estate are, are such that it tends to be slow moving. It's extremely capital intensive. And the most prudent people tend to be the people that have the least activity rather than the most. Right. So if, if this works, I think it's, it's, it would be a result of the, you know, the, the strength of the technology. And one thing that I have talked about, you know, I've talked to several iBuyers previously that were looking at tech facilities or, or setting up other opportunities. And one thing that I do make sense is sort of understanding the seller catalysts, right? So like we, uh, whenever Benson's buying a property, I'm sure he looks for like the source and motivation of a, of a seller. Um, and these, these companies, you know, can scrape, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, filings for somebody getting a new job or, or maybe getting divorced as reasons why somebody might, might be looking to, to sell a home and, and like understanding that would probably help understand pricing. Um, but even for that, there might be some sort of like capital light expression of that idea that could be, you know, maybe next gen leads or for, for Benson or anybody else might, might be a way to, to express that in more of a capital light way. So we'll see. I mean, it will, it will be exciting. There might be, this might be long-term capital management as applied to real estate, or it might be, we might be totally wrong. I'm neither long nor short on this one, which is very smart. Well, if I choose to sell this townhome, you know, maybe I'll just see what kind of offer they want to put in. You yeah, do raise well, a good point though. Yeah. <clears throat> well, what I've heard is that it does kind of serve as like a free appraisal, though you do bring up a good point. One way that I could see that this being successful would be, and again, I don't have access to their models, their data, what they offer on properties, what kind of discount they demand. But if they're going to offer somebody cash in three to five days, you know, I'm a, I'm a real estate investor. When I offer on, you know, a small, like a duplex or something like that, I, I want a discount. And so the way that I can incentivize somebody to do that, to give me a discount is I offer cash and right. it's not the right move for most people. It's just not because they can just wait it out and they can get a full market offer and they're fine with that. And I think that's the way that most people go about it. So I'd be curious like what kind of discount they actually ask for or if they're just like, we're going to pay you full market price. We'll close in three days. We'll send one of our, our maintenance folks out there to sort of, you know, turn over the unit, paint, uh, maybe do some light upgrades, update some of the fixtures. Uh, we've got an easy playbook for that. And then we'll list it on the market in, in a week. Right. So I don't know exactly because there's a continuum there uh, right. on the one hand, maybe they're asking for a huge margin of safety and they're getting one out of every 20 deals. Right. right. On the other hand, maybe they're paying full market price. They're charging some sort of commission to get a little bit of uh, a little bit of revenue there while they hold the while they hold the uh, the house in inventory, you know, doing some light modifications to it, some light upgrades and then relisting, relisting it. So I, I'm not exactly sure kind of like where in that continuum they stand. But right. to your point, the caveat could be, hey, maybe they're just like getting sweet discounts to uh, to um, replacement costs, which is effectively kind of your, your barrier to entry in real estate. Um, Absolutely. One of the ways that you, that you can look at uh, sort of your, your, uh, your, your moat or your margin of safety is what can you build this house for, right? So again, I don't have all the data. Uh, Chamath is probably in a much better place in terms of data and sort of in, inside information than, than any of us are, but I've always kind of been interested and, and scratched my head a little bit at the iBuyer model. Um, yeah, well, we'll have to see what shakes out. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm also fascinated by it too. And, and when you combine a relatively new activity with a huge amount of capital that's already been deployed and, and clearly even more capital sitting on the sidelines, especially when it's it's, it's pretty highly levered capital, it's, it's always gonna be um, a super exciting thing. And, and exactly as you allude to, you know, and this is true for investing generally, uh, there is always trade-offs with respect to high capacity strategies and then high margin of safety, deeply discounted strategies. You know, so what, what, you know, often investors are looking for the confluence of those two things, but really the profit pool is nominated by those that choose for the very differentiated, you know, but deploy less capital strategies of which there are probably I buyers that, that do that, but it doesn't seem like that seems to be the, the overall emphasis of, of the field at the moment or trying to deploy as much as capital, uh, you know, as, as much as possible with, with very little margin of safety and discount. And that's that's a great way to achieve volume, but but there are additional risks associated with it. So we'll have to see. No, that's but a that's a, that's a great way to, to yeah, that's yeah. a great way to differentiate the the two. Like like are they more on the investor side, or are they trying to facilitate and be market makers and make you know much thinner margins, but do you know do much more volume? So that's a great way to which it, it sounds like that is more of their approach and their business model. 
But again, I don't know if they combine a little bit more, depending on how, how correct their models are and what type of discount they demand when they offer these cash offers. So the only way to deal with how about this, this is, is for you to sell your townhouse, I think. Yeah, I'll update, I'll update everybody. Exactly. <laughs> well, to continue on with some of the some of the discussion on, on the SPACs, I, I would say um, if I'm gonna go if I'm gonna short the open door SPAC, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go long on Sam Zell's SPAC. He he has also recently raised a SPAC, not dedicated to real estate, but actually to logistics um, and distribution companies. So I think right. they're they're companies dedicated to the logistics and the the that services based uh, industry. Have you done any Have you done any reading on any of this? I, I've, I've read, I was interested that he filed this back and I was also very interested that it, that it was in the real estate space. I mean, what it's, it, it is, it's a de- definitely an interesting time for, you know, logist, logistics and distribution businesses generally, right? I mean, Amazon has just really remade the, the world in retail, but I think what's, what's underemphasized is, is also their approach with respect to, to distribution. I mean, to have the everything store is incredible. Um, and that really changes the, the retail game, but in order to distribute everything that you bought on the, on the retail store, you know, is, is maybe even harder still. Um, there's also just a lot going on within uh, distribution for for delivery of, of food companies, right? There's, uh, you know, the uh, Uber founder, uh, Kalanick, was, you know, I think, obviously head of the game in terms of Uber and is now looking at, you know, ghost kitchens as, as the next category that he'll focus on. So I think that as everything moves online, the, the other and implicit part of that is that everything needs to be delivered um, based on this online activity and it needs to match to the real world. Um, and I think that that it's it's a potentially brilliant move. It obviously has a has a real estate component um, in terms of just understanding you know where, where you are relative to where the where the delivery should should take place. Um, but we'll have to see from there. I, I I don't know if I think I mean it's interesting just because for for the most part for the um, activities that that Zell is engaged in outside of real estate they haven't been as accretive, right? Like the the USA Today was was a name that he owned starting in 2007. Obviously took a loss on that. Um, but I, I think that this this logistics sort of can cater to a lot of his strengths and, and is a way for him to to again have like a, a royalty or anything else that's associated with future online delivery um, and, and and future online activity. So I think it's I think it's relatively smart for real estate investors to consider this as another um, as another mechanism to and also to avail themselves of malls and other properties that will frankly become less valuable as more is delivered online. Yeah, <clears throat> I was listening to a podcast by a guy, Chris Powers. I'm not sure. Do you follow Chris on Twitter or do you follow yeah, his, I, his company at all? Yeah, I, I, I do follow. Uh, I, I do follow Chris. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like uh, the way he thinks. He's got a really, really clear way of seeing uh, seeing things in real from you know from a real estate perspective. Very, very good uh, professional real estate investor that runs a an, a Class B industrial company that they all only focus on class B industrial. And he put out a podcast wow. recently that explains his thesis around class B industrial. And I thought it was really well done. And he hit on a lot of the themes that you just touched on the last mile delivery, uh, the diminishing supply in his market, the, the, right. the Dallas Fort Worth area. And, um, and just the need, the clear tailwinds of not just goods, but also like, f- you know, food, um, just the tailwinds in e-commerce and yep. people wanting their stuff the next day or even the same day. And what does that look like from a storage and infrastructure perspective? You know, there's a stat that he always throws out that, I mean, I've, I've been admittedly, uh, admittedly stealing, but, um, you know, he, he, he listened to a speech of someone, and I can't remember, it's in the podcast, where basically the guy said, look, for every billion dollars in e-commerce sales, you need a million dollar, or a million square feet of uh, industrial real estate, which oh, is fascinating. pretty yeah. pretty interesting to think about. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's that's a lot of square footage. Um, for, for those of you who are not familiar with kind of like, you know, sizes of, of real estate uh, or sizes of buildings, that's a, that's a very substantial uh, distribution facility. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's brilliant. So I'm, I'm, I'm I'm currently, I'm currently short. I'm not really, but I'm, I'm short open door SPAC, long Sam Zell SPAC. We'll see what happens in about five years. Maybe both of them go down. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Um, yeah, you're, you're probably right. I mean, it's, 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 it's just a very interesting time. You're seeing a lot in flux. And and I think that in some ways, what, what the impact of COVID has been is it's sort of like catalyzed the future, brought the future forward. I think that these things would have maybe played out in, you know, the 2020, 2024 timeframe, but you know this this is sort of just catalyzed the 
the growth of, of these logistic providers and just shifting things online in a, in a much faster way as everybody's been at home. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I would probably take the side of that bet. I probably would not, I, I, I've maintained my aversion to, to short selling and, and, and long short in general. So I, I, but I, I would be, my, my rank sorting would definitely be Sam Zell's back over, over open door, um, over DraftKings and things like that too. One last piece on, on the delivery angle too is um, we have taken, uh, taken a lot of look at um, alcohol delivery companies. And this is also like an, an interesting space, uh, you know, Drizzly, Saucy, companies like, like Flaviar. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a fascinating space where those companies do exceedingly well. And, and obviously they, they've seen a big impact from COVID. Um, but the, the other component is that those companies can't actually own their inventory. It has to be distributed by, you know, local uh, alcohol uh, those with liquor licenses in the applicable state. And then they just, um, and then a lot of times those, those local merchants actually uh, also deliver the, the goods. So it's a situation where the companies actually have great ROIC and actually are much more capital light than the traditional delivery company because they don't have to maintain the inventory that, other, that others do. And it's all by virtue of, of regulation and statute. So they just build these relationships with independent distributors and say, we'll guarantee you a X amount of demand and you serve as yeah. our, our our distributors, so effectively they are just demand aggregators, and they are, you know, ch- maybe they're charging a fee to be on the platform or, or what have you, or splitting fees somehow. But is that kind of the way it works? That's, that's exactly the way it works. You almost think of it as like Coke and its bottlers, right? Like, um, you know, when when these orders come in, uh, first off, there's a you know clear volume uh, benefit for these companies because when they take in the the vodka or whatever other liquor is being sold, they they can then you know take very large bottles and split them up amongst the smaller bottles to the to the company, so they don't have to use the you know so there's there's a volume discount, um, and then they do split split fees with those companies, and the companies are, are financing the inventory themselves. So there's one less working capital that's that's pent up in inventory initially, um, and then two you can execute like a national strategy, um, and then for for states like Pennsylvania where all uh, liquor stores are state owned, um, you know you're actually working with with the local government, and if you can recruit that one government, there's also lower CAC um, than would be associated with acquiring multiple merchants. Because you just need to get you know Pennsylvania to sign on, and then all of those liquor stores are are part and parcel of, of your strategy. Wow, yeah, that's a that sounds like a really really great business model. That's super interesting. Are these private companies? I've actually never heard of never yeah, heard of these. So they they are they are all private. Drizzly, Saucy, uh, Saucy, uh, Flaviar, um, and we uh, have a good relationship with with. Um, effectively the CEO of Flaviar and we've gone through, they have a little bit of a differentiated model too, where unlike Drizzly and Saucy, they have a subscription-based model um, and and they cater to to customers that want to, you know, on a quarterly basis get, um, you know, if, if they're very into to whiskey or brandy, get like a curated set of, of bottles every month. So it's almost like a, you know, birch box or something else in terms of, of, of delivering that. And then they also provide their subscribers with, you know, you, you could purchase whatever bottle you want on, on that basis, but it's almost like with, with respect to that, um, those incremental purchases, almost like Costco, right? Like, like they, they can mark them up at a lower cost and then get the uh, subscriber revenue, which is much higher margin and much higher you know, visibility and quality. That's super interesting. Do they, do they deliver Buffalo Trace? I'm a big fan of Buffalo Trace. I'd have to check. And I'm sure that their business time. has been booming during COVID as, as alcohol sales have done nothing but Go hyperbolic. It's, it's gone. It's gone up and up. They're also on. Um. Um. Uh, Flavor is also featured on Joe Rogan's podcast. So if, if you look back, especially in like a May, like it, yeah, Rogan is, is drinking. Um. They 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 also have their their own uh, alcohol, Madre Mezcal, and then they have um you know s- several other uh, like they're, they're making some some other alcohols internally and, and then but yeah Joe Rogan can 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 lay out exactly what what he's been delivered and he drinks on this podcast. Interesting. Yeah, no, I typically scroll through or uh, fast forward through his advertisements, but I'm surprised I missed that. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on from specs, and uh, I, I want to get into the Federal Reserve and just some of the financial wizardry that's been going on. What your opinion of all this is, and maybe how this is going to play out in the end. This is all a fool's errand. We all know this, but everyone right. likes to pontificate about where this is going. What asset classes, what companies, what investment ideas are going to win and what are going to lose? So let's go there. I mean, this is—it's been—it's been crazy, and we're on the cusp of potentially having another stimulus package released. You may have more to update there than I do, but I'm curious right. what your thoughts are on all this. Well, I mean, first and foremost, right? Like just 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 like you said at the top, and I, I uh, you know uh, paraphrase Ben Graham here that you know, the point of of this conversation is probably to make 
astrology look predictive, right? We're just going to be totally wrong in the context of this, but it, it is it's fun to talk about it. One, I've been uh, blown away by the, by the Federal Reserve's re response to, to this crisis. And I, and I really do think, I mean, it, it is strictly more uh, aggressive than, than, you know, Ben Bernanke or, or Hank Paulson within, within the context of 2008. Now, there's been fewer for sales and bank, you know, banks getting together. I mean, I, there's a, I think, um, you know, uh, with, within the last crisis, uh, John Mack of Morgan Stanley compared Ben Bernanke to eHarmony because he was making all these banks get together in, in the same way. So there's, there's been less activity on, on that side with respect to private businesses, but you know, from PPP to, to the CARES Act writ large, to this new um, stimulus, to even programs that really haven't been as highly covered, but like the Main Street Lending Program um, is also, you know, a, a, the Federal Reserve lending directly to, to businesses, or even the Federal Reserve purchasing private company bonds um, in order to enhance liquidity. But all that stuff is one, incredibly expensive a balance sheet. And then two, where the Federal Reserve would previously use the financial system as an intermediary and use private banks in order to carry out its bidding. We're just seeing a, a tremendous amount of, you know, the, the federal response, the Federal Reserve acting as a principal versus an agent um, within the economy. And I think that that's, you know, it, just a, a, a very new phenomenon. And we get, we get to see how that's going to play out. Um, even just the, the Federal Reserve not shrinking its balance sheet, which was projected to do, um, you know, from 2018 moving forward. So, I mean, I, I think that that's, that that's really, you know, it, it, from, from a legal perspective, a very exciting time. And, and I think, you know, more, more globally, it will be interesting to see if one, this maintains throughout, you know, after the election, right? And, and then if, if this activity does subside, what happens, what happens to the economy thereafter? Um, and then two, you know, the other kind of thing to consider is if, if this doesn't roll off and if it, and if it continues, how would the Federal Reserve continue to, to push money into the economy? And, and, and how would it make sure it wasn't, you know, in Ray Dalio's words, you know, pushing on a string that this fiscal stimulus would continue to have, you know, some, some impact. I, you know, I, I, I sort of think about, what would be that next level? And it's not immediately clear to me. I mean, I think that we're getting closer and closer to helicopter money, right? And 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 you could certainly see how. Well, I don't think it's, it's demonstrative of you know modern monetary th theory in terms of MMT. Like I do think that we're starting to see that like the concepts that that and that antedated that brought in the economy in a new way, and it's certainly just a very dovish side. No, I, I agree, especially with that last comment. This, the phrase that Ray Dalio uses, pushing on a string, which effectively means when you're trying to stimulate the economy, but instead of pushing against, you know, a, a, an economy that's that's revved and primed to to move forward, you're effectively pushing on a string. So if you can kind of imagine that, you, you, the money is really going nowhere, and so you're effectively seeing inflation in certain in certain areas that may or may not show up in the in the actual inflation numbers. So it'll be interesting to see what type of stimulative effects this has three to five years out. <clears throat> what's, what's your general take on mon modern monetary theory? Because to me, it makes sense in theory, but often theory and practice differ. And I fear, a along with a lot of other people, that treating the, treating the, reserve, the world's reserve currency as an infinitely printable and creatable currency that you are effectively putting the reserve currency, that reserve status at risk. And so, I mean, you know, are you pro MMT? Are you, are you a little bit more uh, Austrian yeah. in nature? I'd be curious how you think about that. I probably look to, to a more, uh, you know, Austrian approach. I mean, I consider myself really a new Keynesian in terms of like, I do think that over time, you know, the, the economy does stabilize, but, you know, we all live in the present. And so at times it, it's palliative impacts can be, can be helpful in order to make sure that, that fewer people lose their homes or their jobs. Um, and certainly with respect to, to re-education of the people that have lost their jobs, I'm an enormous subscriber of that. My, I have read Deficits Don't Matter, and I think that modern monetary theory um, is super interesting. And I could see why, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders or, or AOC is, is, is so drawn to it, right? Of course, too, if, if you want to run large government programs. I, I think one, it obviously doesn't work for every country because you have to have you know, control of your own capital markets. You have to be able to print your own currency. You can't be pegged to another currency. Um, you have to be able to so, borrow so, in your own currency. Exactly. And you have to be able to, to borrow in your own currency too. And, and really, then you have to have a pretty powerful central bank too, which is a little bit less covered, but you have to make sure that 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 your central bank impulses and responses are are more powerful than the exogenous factors that can override a currency. I mean, for the 
for the Thai bot, right? Like there, there, there is hot money and other influences that are just more that despite the fact that they have a, you know, a very developed uh, economy in, in certain contexts, it's just not like the United States, right? Like, like what Jeremy Powell does here versus in, in Thailand will always be more effective in the United States because of the, the size of the US economy and, and its relative importance throughout the financial system. Um, and so I think that, you know, the, the predominance of, of, MN, um, of MMT here versus other countries, um, you know, the only other things that could really, you know, like on the same scale would be, you know, the, the Eurozone as applied to, to Euro denominated countries. So, so Germany, for example, would be enormously impactful within the MMT sphere. Um, and then I think the deficits don't matter is a good book to, to diagnose this because unlike maybe the MMT uh, premises that, that you see on the internet, at least within deficits don't matter, they talk about the fact that it doesn't solve the resource allocation problem that the, you know, money might be infinitely printed, but we still have a, a finite amount of, of goods and services and capital goods that, that create those goods and services. So there could be recessions within goods markets that can't be remedied with, with cheap money, just like cheap money can't create a COVID vaccine, right? Like those are just things that don't, that don't map to, to the real world. My, my biggest problem with it, um, having thought about it a lot, is the, so it, it, with, with, with all of these caveats and, and if people admit that there's a resource allocation problem, then you know, avoid the destruction of value losing businesses through through money printing. I think has long term implications for, for the economy. And you know, I, I have read a lot of what the von Mises Institute thinks about this, um, which immediately indicates some sort of like bias with respect to my own thought process too. But I do think that you know, sometimes you know, there are, there are people that uh, you know get it, it, after people get drunk, there's there's a hangover that, that's associated with with the drunkenness, right? And and you know, that, that's part of a a cure that your body has with respect to to, to the drunkenness, right? Like that's just, it's part of your body just processing, you know, and, and it's dehydrated and it's, it's a, it's a negative experience, but it's not one that, that you can absolve by just staying drunk. Right. And so like if, if, if the whole goal is to, um, is to just avoid the negative impacts and implications of the economy by virtue of the imposition of monetary stimulus, I think that creates zombie companies. Um, and doesn't allow for resources to be reappropriated by value creating businesses over time. And so I think that like, you know, 2008 was a really good time to, have countrywide financial and everything else that was applying capital inappropriately and with too much degree of leverage to have those things go off. And those loan assets were acquired by other businesses that created more value, right? Lehman, Lehman Brothers, especially the Euro European operation that was creating money was way better off in the hands of Barclays. And so I, I think that like, that's, that's the one part of it that I would point to as, you know, sometimes while certainly very painful in the short term, those losses, if, if it goes to the better allocation of resources over the long term. Is, is really what I would push back against um, and probably why I take, I'm not a full-blown subscriber of MMT, but I would say I dismissed it, I, I inappropriately dismissed it initially as, you know, total BS. Um, and, and now I, you know, I can absolutely see, I, I understand more of it. I understand the, the intellectual rigor behind it, but I still think that over the long term it would have worse implications and, and would, would result in lower economic growth than, than having, you know, bad companies fail. Now I, <clears throat> I, I think all that is spot on. I would say for myself, I'm probably a long-term Austrian, probably yeah. short-term Keynesian, if that makes sense. So, yeah. you know, when t 2008 happened, like yeah, Munger and Char you know, Buffett and Munger would both said that Bernanke, you know, absolutely did the right thing to keep liquidity going in the system. And I think that there was certainly a need to keep liquidity or keep the, the blood flow of the economy moving back in March right. when everybody was freaking out, thinking that millions would die and this would be the, you know, the bubonic plague, right? And right. that part of that's probably the media's fault. I think that long term that, you know, I'm, I'm an Austrian, short term, uh, I do believe government has a has a place to keep liquidity in markets. You know, where do you draw those lines? That's why it's good to have a two party system. I, I think I right. think that there's a healthy balance to debate. Maybe not as spirited as it is today, or partisan as it is today, but I do think that that's the benefit of having, you know, multiple parties. Whether you subscribe to one or the other, I, I worry that because I don't think that the U EU w will will be able to replace the U.S. as a reserve currency group. Right. And if you read all of Ray Dalio's latest thinking, he has put out six chapters of phenomenal research. Of, I'm talking like long-term, multi-century research about what it looks like for an empire to cycle from you know small player to world power and then to sort of sunset. And whether that's through its own demise because it borrowed too much or it sort of fell behind, got complacent or a combination, 
he's done some really good research and his research effectively says that, you know, China is this rising power and is effectively neck and neck with the U.S. in all forms of competitiveness, whether it's education, uh, military, financial, uh, in, in innovation. I mean, all these different measures of, uh, of sovereign competitiveness. And so from a long-term perspective, that I think is what worries me the most from a, from a, values, philosophical worldview, do you want China to have the reserve currency status or would you rather the U.S.? Right. I think that's yeah, a question we ought to be asking ourselves. Right. No, I, I think it's a great point. And, and that, that is one of the biggest advantages of a, you know, a hard money policy or, or something that's closer to that is, um, you know, it, it will impact the U.S.'s capacity to be a reserve currency. And, and in the short term, right, money printing actually creates more reserve currency, right? But but I, I do think over, over the long term, especially if inflation takes up, and people don't, especially people holding, you know, treasuries that 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 yield, you know, virtually nothing. Uh, you know, if if there's an an enormous inflation drag or an inflation tax associated with that, then there will inherently be a turn out of, um, you know, U.S. you know U.S. and, and dollars nominated assets. And of course, right for every, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't happen immediately, right? Because because even when people you know sell you know, treasuries or anything else, there has to be a holder of them. But what happened over the over the long term is that our capacity to print money and, and to control our own capital account will diminish if others think and, you know, do so at an infinitum and for any you know, political or, or governmental role. Yeah. So I mean, just just like everything else, I mean, I think it's it's an interesting theory. Um, and it's come at an interesting time when when government has a role in the economy that it hasn't previously had really ever before. Um, and certainly since the growth of, of, of capitalism overall, but it, it's a um, it's potentially like, like so much else if carried to the, to its, its furthest aim could, could really undermine a lot of this ability, which, which benefits you as. Agreed. Agreed. And it, it, to your point, it's interesting. I, I haven't looked into this, but it's interesting. It would be interesting to do a, a very deep study on every recession that's happened. Let's just say in the last hundred to 200 years in the United States right. to see if there is an uptick in, uh, this more modern mo- modern monetary theory, uh, n- new or old Keynesianism, uh, more or, or, or anti-free market policies. Uh, it would just be interesting. You know, back in 2008, there was the Occupy Wall Street. Uh, right. You know, right now there's all kinds of movements around canceling rent, around uh, universal basic income. And, and I have a hard time believing that it's not coincidental to what's going on, you know, both economically as well as politically in, in the United States. Right. No, I, I, I totally agree with respect to that. I mean, it's interesting to just, you know, the, the other thing that you could, you could map to that is, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to believe, but at the turn of the, the, the turn of the 2000s, right, interest rates were, were 6%. I mean, I think, it's, I think it's increasingly clear that the capital in and of itself is, is losing its, its scarcity, right? And so you know, what sort of comes, uh, not, not even, you know, late capitalism or anything of, of the type, but when there's sufficient capital to to fund all of our needs and and technology businesses and everything else are so efficient at doling out the capital to different outcomes and, and even just using less capital themselves. I mean, but knives have said capital light probably, you know, it, it, uh, if, 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 if you had heard it this much, you know, you'd probably take a drink each time just by virtue of you know, those are the models that really seem to be working and, and you know, seem to be relevant. So I think that these capital light models that, that are extremely efficient, um, and, and seem to get the, the, the best valuations versus capital generally, which yields nothing right now in, in your cash account or any, and, and if, and, and we're lucky here to have zero interest rates versus negative interest rates throughout. I think it's, I think one third of the world's GDP at present is in negative interest rate countries. Unbelievable, right? It ends in Europe, in Europe last year, there were 14 junk rated issuers that had negative yielding bonds, which is kind of interesting to think about, right? So, right. So it's, it's just, a, it, I thought about that a lot because why aren't you keeping your money in the mat, under the mattress versus yielding to you know, literally a, a non-investment grade issuer, um, you know, the, the high yield bonds are, are negative yield bonds still. So blown away by, by, by that aspect too. No, it's, it is, it literally is the world upside down. And actually uh, O'Shaughnessy Asset Management Neil, I'm not sure if you saw this this paper. It's a pretty long paper. It was like a 90-some page paper. I read probably two-thirds of it uh, last weekend. I shared it on my blog. It is, it's it's titled something like Markets Upside Down or something along those lines. But yeah. it effectively talks about 
it reasons through how to think about what will benefit from negative or very low interest rate regimes. And, you know, equities, obviously, as we've all seen, are, are primed right. to continue to explode because when you're when you're next best alternative is 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 one percent or zero percent or at a real basis you know already negative really for some of these treasuries and even in the united states if we have a percent and a half or two percent inflation rates you're already getting a, a a negative real yield so highly recommend reading that paper but i guess just to sum it all up I also shared a Stan Druckenmiller interview, it was like four four minutes or something like that, and and he <laughs> said exactly what you what you said, which is you guys were pumping the maestro up back in two thousand and five, and I said something along the lines of you know this is a party, but parties have consequences, and there's going to be a hangover after the party, and and look what happened, and and I, I just that's what I quoted in my blog last weekend. And that just, that's really struck me. One thing I think that's really struck me as, as well about that quote is that, you know, okay, it's 2020. We just had one of the craziest GDP numbers come out in all of history. Right. Uh, recorded history for, for, for any country. And <clears throat> stock markets at all time highs. Uh, and Druckenmiller saying this feels like 2005. So think about, you know, two years from now, you could see the effects of all this. That's what's so interesting to me. I quoted, um, you'll, you'll like this, Neil. I quoted one of Prem Watts's, uh, or I think his 2003, his 2003 annual letter where he, where he started buying credit default swaps like five years early because he said, this is a bubble. He was five years early and bled, you know, millions of dollars ultimately made, I think like a billion and a half, uh, net gain over top of right. the money that he actually spent hedging his portfolio. But he was five years early. And so I guess if you if you take a longer-term approach, I have a hard time believing that there's not going to be some some longer-term, you know, five, ten-plus-year consequences to printing a lot of this money and the, the price of equities in response to, you know, the, the non-scarcity and the low cost of capital. So. Oh yeah, oh, I, I totally agree. And I, I mean, I, there, there just has to be long-term consequences. And, and then second, I mean, even just the government's position. I mean, now that it took so long to to roll off the previous exposures that the Federal Reserve had to its balance sheet from from 2008, you know, starting in 2008, really throughout the duration of, of 2009, you know, the balance sheet did not shrink that much throughout throughout the you know, 2010s. And now it's, it's it's larger than ever. Um, so you know, the government has now been a, a long-term player with an enormous balance sheet, you know, trillions of dollars deployed. In the U.S. economy, um, generally, and I think it's it's going to have enormous implications for the markets. Uh, so we'll have to see. Um, but I mean, it's we're certainly in, in our in uncharted territory, enti- entirely uncharted. Um, and uh, you know, like Warren Buffett always describes, like, oh, you know, in in the nineteen nine, you know, nineteen hundreds, you would have had you know a pandemic, two world wars, and, and things certainly ticked higher and climbed higher. But here, I mean, to your point, there is a new expanding world power. Um, and one which is largely orthogonal to the to the U.S. system, right, and, and and really to the entrenched idea of capitalism combined with uh, democracy that, that we've seen previously. And so, but and I think it, and I think too with with um, the social points ideas and everything else, they're they're trying to gamify parts of the system in order to make it uh, you know easier to to uh, glom onto and 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 and, to, and, and sort of a, it's just a competitive to, to democracy in and of itself right so uh, I, I think I, I, I think it's going to be an interesting you know the 2020s I hope will be roaring um, without the the 2030s being an enormous depression but but in and of itself all of these things go through cycles and, and the 2020 will absolutely put a uh, major imprint into the into next 10 years certainly if, if not longer yeah I, I I agree I um I want to wrap up our time together. We're at about roughly an hour, <clears throat> and, I'll, and I'll go first on this question. But the question I want to ask you is basically, what have you been reading or studying lately that is most interesting to you? And I'll start so I can give you yeah. a few minutes to, to maybe think about that. But um, the most interesting uh, set of pieces that I've been reading lately that I've really been thinking a lot on are Ray Dalio's pieces, The Changing World Order. Awesome. I will I will link to those in the show notes, and I highly recommend people. It's actually multiple chapters in a book that I believe he's going to be 
releasing. And he's been working on it with his staff, but it just goes through the history of the United States from a very high level macro macro view. And, you know, I, I came I came to the subject of investing through Warren Buffett. He always says that he doesn't really care what interest rates are. He just compares them as his next best alternative. But I think that's a little simplistic. And what he's really doing in the back of his mind is he does have the macro scenario in whenever he's looking at an investment, he's he's looking at, at it and saying, well, you know what? We just went through a huge, a huge downturn. There are lots of opportunities. Or he's saying, you know what? This is 2008 and things have been going really well for a while. Like I need to make sure I'm not paying peak earnings. So he's right. always got the macro background in his in his in the back of his mind as 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 a framework for how he's probably looking at investments. He obviously knows each of his businesses very well from a microeconomics perspective. But back to what I was saying, I've really enjoyed these these series primarily because it really does put into perspective where we are from a political perspective, you know, the rise of populism, both on the right and the left, uh, the printing of money and how to effectively think about how it's going to affect investment returns of various asset classes. And he gives a lot of historic data to to, to back up all of his claims, not saying that he's going to be 100% 100% spot on. I don't even think he believes that. He just believes in using long-term history as his guide. He's written a couple other books, uh, The Principles of Big Debt Crises, uh, as well as the book Principles, which is just sort of the, a book on thinking about thinking and, and learning. Right. Highly recommend both of those. But but I, I would um, I would recommend this series to anybody that's interested in macro history of the United States, as well as how to think about the rise of China in in relation to America being, you know, a 250-year-old experiment and yes. an empire in quotes are we on are we on the on the way uh, are we in decline relative to China are we on the way to a duopoly of of sovereignties no one, no one knows. But I yeah. think if you use history as your guide, you will see that there has really not ever been a duopoly. There's only been a, there's only ever been one world, true world power. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the world does tend to global hegemony. I mean, it, there's there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, it, it's it really is fascinating. And, and Ray, Ray Dalio's chapters have been fantastic. I, I also like you, love love principles. Um, I, it's very, it, it, it is, it is a, a certainly like a, a certainly interesting time, a, a time of enormous change and, and frankly change has been, it would probably have materialized, like I said, anyway, but, but has been catalyzed by the recent environment too. So yeah, I, I've, I was blown away by that. I do look forward to, to the full, to the full book coming out as well. Um, but I, it's interesting with that. I, I think what's interesting about his approach too, just thinking about it is, you know, he, he puts out certain, it's almost like singles from an album, right? Like he's, he's released six uh, different chapters and then he gets the feedback on that before releasing the, the full book, which I'm sure he has, Lock, Talk, and Barrel. And the, the, the last book that he had after Principles was almost more of like a textbook, which I think of, of which this, this will sort of be too. Just an enormously smart uh, individual. I mean, obviously Bridgewater is a you know, singular place with a, with, with, with a very unique culture um, in terms of radical. Honesty. Very unique. Um, yeah, so, so I, 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 I thought that was super interesting. Um, and and I, I do look forward to it. The, the, the book that I, I, Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel um, is, is the book on my nightstand right now. I do think that that's that's been great. I think Morgan Housel's, uh, you know, uh, three sides of risk was was excellent. Um, like I, I thought that that article that came out this year um, was you know just really really singular and helped to conceptualize the, um, you know, like like people are always you know what, what Benson and I are, are talking about are, are really the uh, enormous changes, the, the the enormous impacts that, that you can have, and, and a lot of times though. When I'm modeling my own investments, I'm looking at, oh, the company grow by five or, or by you know three percent, right? And so, but the three, you know, this this third side of risk, which is which is really the, the sum substance of this conversation, is the most important. You know, can the company survive? Will it get wiped out? You know, will it will it go totally bankrupt? And just understand that that third and most important side of of you know mega change um, as applied to uh, to Morgan's own life um, when 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 he was uh, really focused on on skiing and and, and being a fast skier. Uh, I thought was was one of the most impactful things I've read since since we last spoke. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's it's a lot of really interesting um, a lot of really interesting things coming out. The, the other book I, I read 
I guess maybe earlier this year, but but it had an impact um, because I've been thinking about it in the context of, of Robinhood investing and things like that was uh, Charles Schwab's Invested. I thought that, that was a, a great read. Um, and the, the quote that stuck out to me from that book was uh, Roberts, uh, George Roberts of, of KKR um, was actually on the board, uh, was was a friend of and, and, and was later on the board of um, Schwab. And and he, he kept asking uh, Charles, how do you create equity value from people just engaging in these short-term transactions? And, you know, it's, it, I've thought about that a lot for these businesses that don't have the SaaS like recurring revenue that, that everybody wants to see, but how can they, um, you know, how can they, you know, enterprise value by, by virtue of, of having, you know, repeat customers come back with, even without the, the duration of a contract, right? Like what, and, and, and the tools of course are the same thing as everything else, switching costs, you know, uh, good consumer behavior and just delighting your customers, right? As Warren Buffett said before, he hasn't really seen many companies go bankrupt that have, you know, really delighted customers and that, that went into his purchase of C's candy. So yeah, th th that's what's on my nightstand right now. Um, and, and I do think that Hazel's new book of psychology of money is, is, is worth, is worth most people's time. I have not read it. I've heard a lot of good things about it. So I will certainly put it in my Amazon shopping cart. I, what, what, uh, Blair, uh, Blair Silverberg, friend of the show is, is also, it, it, it would be interesting to see. I know he's reading on um, traction, which is really about, you know, growing these growing teams and, and, you know, there's really three stages of entrepreneurship. So, and, uh, the, the first stage is of course, the entrepreneur does, does the things himself. Then he, he finds people that he can, he can work through in, in order for a different approach. And then the last is the creation of leaders within, within the organization that, you know, can, can lead projects, lead assignments and really carry out their own playbook. And then you're just checking in. And it's really, you know, going from part two to part three is, is a, uh, the upshot of, of understanding traction in, in detail. So, um, also a good, a good, a good book to read and it's, it's, it's informing his leadership style. It's kind of cool. Love it. Love it. Neil, yeah. man, this was fun. We will do it again soon. I know everyone enjoys hearing your perspective and I learn something new every time we talk. So this has been fun. Thanks for coming on and we'll chat soon. I'm pumped about it too. Yeah, it's, it's, it, I always learn a lot. And uh, now we know that we can start an alcohol delivery company together. You know, you, that's, that's the upshot of, of, of uh, this podcast. So we'll see. Well, Although, uh, we'd love to do it. And yeah, I, I just wanted to tease out two things. Um, the one, Benson and I will hopefully in short order have a, a new article come out that will be an extension of an article um, that, that we previously worked on um, about, about WeWork. And, and we, we were lucky to get some some people much smarter than ourselves to do some quantitative analysis behind it, which is, which is phenomenal. Um, and then second, uh, also wanted to say, for those of you that are listening to this podcast, I'm sorry for wasting your time that Benson will have in short order on the podcast. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, David Gartner was, was an amazing addition. Um, and now to see, um, you know, I, I, I got the, the skinny from some people that will be, I'll be listening to in, in short order that, that Benson will be speaking with. And it's, it's pretty phenomenal. Like really, really exciting. We are super excited about the people that are coming on, but there are a few people that I have met that are as sharp as Neil O'Donnell. So Neil will be coming back regularly, and we're excited about that. So thanks, Neil, and we will chat again soon, my friend. Awesome. Thank you. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, Go to circleofcompetence.co, that's circleofcompetence.co, to sign up for my weekly podcast emails, as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.